All right. Well, this is what we call the uncomfortable conversation, but something that's very real and needs to be reckoned with the right way in order for the world to be good. Hi, I'm Mary Edwards, and you're entering a world gone good. Hello, and welcome again to World Gone Good. My name's Steve, and I'm so happy you're here. I need to begin today's show with a warning to listeners. We are going to spend the next 40 minutes plus having an open and honest conversation about a very sensitive topic, and that topic is race. This will include perspectives and language that may make you uncomfortable, and on that note specifically... My guest today has asked me that we keep her words as she says them, and has said them, so we are not bleeping anything out. The good goal here is to open our minds and our hearts, but again, a warning, because there's going to be some language in this show that may make you uncomfortable. So, what do you do if you're just going about your regular day and you are verbally and almost physically assaulted by someone simply because you have a different skin color than they have? And how do you find the good in a situation this inherently bad? Singer-songwriter Mary Edwards found herself living this very moment. This is her story. This is how she finds her good. Well, hello, my friend Mary Edwards. Hello, Steve. So you had an interesting situation happen to you, and I'm just going to let you catch us up on what happened, and then we'll go from there. So the floor is yours. About a month ago, I was running what was to be a simple three-minute errand by walking into my tailor in my neighborhood here in New York City. And I noticed when I was pulling up to the curb There were two men standing outside. Actually, one was squatting, the other one was standing, and the one who was standing was the most noticeable because here we are in the middle of a pandemic. He's standing very close to the entrance of this establishment, and he's not wearing a mask. And so you think, okay, this is about COVID, but it's that plus some other special things. So I was a little leery of him, so I made sure that when I walked past him, I made myself as inconspicuous as possible so as not to face him because he was in mid-conversation with this other man. And as I was about to cross the threshold, I suddenly heard him working up a great amount of saliva as if he were about to spit. And in fact, he did spit. He spat within a millimeter of my foot. I turned around in horror disgust and just downright surprise. And as I looked at him, the first words out of his mouth were, as he broke away from his conversation with this man, fuck you, nigger. All you fucking niggers want to do is take over the world. You want everything. You fucking want everything to belong to you. Well, fuck you, nigger. And he went on this tirade with those exact words over and over again. I was astounded, um, and I was, again, in disbelief. I also had things to do, so I was caught up in this sort of mental conflict of how do I I confront him as well as try to keep some normalcy to my day because something like that really has never happened 
to me in that combination of the one-two punch, the doubling down, the epithets with spitting. Uh, in my lifetime, I have encountered people just shouting epithets. Uh, so that's something that in one sense I'm accustomed to. I just haven't heard it in a long while directed towards me. And so I did go into the dry cleaner. I did pick up my pants from the tailor and they were try they heard everything that went on and they told me, you know, try to, you know, keep it together. I know this is upsetting. Just ignore him. And I thought, well, how can I ignore him? He's still ranting and he's right outside the door. And this is not something that one should have to ignore. This is something that has to be faced. And so my first thought was, okay, we're going to document this. I took out my camera. I started rolling and he continued on again. Nothing changed about his rant. My partner happened to be in the car. She saw what was going on and she called the police. Another friend of mine who just coincidentally happened to be there running an errand. She also called the police and a small crowd of people started gathering around again, also in disbelief. Uh, some people were much more assertive than others. Most people were apologetic. Um, all the while, it, it, it felt like, okay, at least I'm not standing here by myself. That's a plus. But what are we going to do about this moment with this man who is insistent that just the mere presence of me is turning his world upside down as he's simultaneously trying to turn my world upside down? And I was horrified. I was, uh, I was a bit angered about a lot of things because my response that was building up in me, along with my response to take out my camera, was not only to the immediate moment, but it was in response to the history of how we have handled situations like this. Um, that it was not just for the sake of protecting myself but ultimately what would be two other black women in a sea of white faces coming down the same plaza and being harassed by him a few minutes after his tirade against me. Um, there was ultimately some form of immediate justice as the police did show up and they, what seems to temporarily be uh, them taking care of it. Uh, he did put up a fight. He insisted that you know, he had a right to do what he was doing, including the spitting, um, that there was, uh, some immediate press on this. Our local paper covered it. And I also had put it on social media really to, you know, illustrate the point, not just that, you know, I'm hurt and put off by this, but that I, I do want something done to this man in this, in this, in the manner of justice being served. However, I want it done the right way. The responses were ranging from outright, you know, empathy or sympathy for what had happened. There was a lot of uh, anger on behalf of others. There were people who wanted to see justice or what they thought was justice because they didn't want to see someone they knew hurt um, in the form of this man in turn, getting hurt. And that's not something that I would want. That's not something that I would even encourage. What I do want from this is to expose him, not only for himself, but as an example of 
this is what I believe people see perhaps not every day in their lives, but in the course of their weeks when uh, someone makes a racially insensitive remark, when in fact there's a, a microaggression being thrown around. And for those who have the tools to understand what that means, to address it, to call people out, to, to be the architects of how we can rebuild our civility, especially around racial matters. Because right now, perhaps more than ever, it seems to be that there's a resurgence of racial insensitivity to the point where people are ignoring it. And as it has been ignored in recent history, um, we could be set back to a time where I wouldn't be able to speak out. Let me ask you some questions, Merrick, um, that I think that a lot of people would like to know. Question number one, were you scared? I was scared for the reason that I hoped he didn't spit on me. So you were more scared about the pandemic issue than the racial issue? No, I was more scared because I don't believe in violence. However, I do believe in self-defense and that spitting pandemic or not to me is one of the most disrespectful acts. It's a grave offense in my book. I've never been spat on and I've always imagined how would I react in the instance that somebody spat? And because this is such a uh, grave time for spitting, I mean, when I heard him spit, I'd never, I hadn't heard that sound of anybody spitting in eight months. So right. I, I knew something was serious right. when I heard it. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> people don't spit, you know, people just don't make that so prominent during a pandemic we've all somewhat been conditioned to be mindful there's a joke i'm gonna just add this little joke in here that it used to be that when you had to fart past wind you pretended to cough or sneeze now when you have to cough or sneeze you try to fart <laughs> to cover it up so you know to hear to hear that sound of of someone you know working up a, a you know harking of saliva that's just not something that people do unless they're trying to make some kind of a statement it was clear that he was trying to make some kind of a statement right. and so the fear in me was the fear of how would i react as someone who's generally a nonviolent person and you know spitting is not a punch it's something it's abstract, but it's still very disgusting. And my thoughts were, I may have to physically lash out on him if, if his spit had so much as touched me. That would change my life. And I was scared thinking about how if I hurt him, I wasn't worried about being hurt. I don't mind taking a bruise for the sake of self-protection. Mm -hmm. But again, that's never happened to me. I don't know what that looks like or feels like. Right. And let me let me let me go back and apologize because I used the word racial and that's the inner that's the wrong word. It's racist. That's what I should have said. So I apologize for right, that. Right, right. Um, no, but that's that's okay. I appreciate that. Um let me ask you this. How does the N-word feel? I can only speak for myself. However, 
I think I'd be safe to assume or safe to say that there are a number of black people. I'm, I'm an American. I'm a black American and I still would like to feel the level of safety on the streets where I live, where I can just walk down the street and not even harbor the thought who is going to lean out of their car window and call me a nigger because that has been my existence. Um, or who is going to try to confront me. I mean, it happened mostly when I was younger. I think young people have a certain kind of gumption about them. Older people might have a certain kind of gumption about them, but usually people within our, our you know, mid-range of age, it's more about microaggressions and not the direct use of the word of, of nigger. Um, and we should be able to say it because it is a real word. Um, in any variation, the way it makes me feel is it, it, it sometimes just sounds so cartoonish because it, for a long time, people weren't using it. So when I hear it, it it's a, a shock and disbelief, but it also will, it'll always elicit a fear for me because when you call me a nigger or when I hear the word nigger, it signals that you are either, you don't like me or you're going to kill me. Right. Uh, you have nothing but ill will for me on some level. So when I hear the word, yes, my back goes up, I look around, I think, oh my God, who's coming after me? And and make no mistake here. I'm not thinking you're going to say, it makes me feel great. I, I think that- Of course I, not. <laughs> I think that, I think it's very fascinating how long that word has prevailed because there was a word in the 70s, which was the white word for it, which was honky. But right. honky went away. It, honky went right? away. And, and, and honky will never carry the gravity. No. And I'm not, and I'm not, exactly. I'm not saying it does. Right. But, but yes, I mean, I, I remember when I was growing up in the seventies, I was listening to a lot of Richard Pryor albums. I was coming into school the next day and, and all of my friends, we were a multicultural group in elementary school, exchanging racial jokes that played on the stereotypes we laughed about it and we moved on it was a different Jew- time because it was a different time jewish people jewish kids were telling jewish jokes catholic kids were telling catholic the number jokes. one show on television right. was all in the family all in the right. family could not play today in a million years could all in the family play today it, it can't because everyone's on edge because i i deeply believe because I could even see it in responses to the incident um, that happened to me, is people know my disposition. People who know me know my disposition, and that is one of peace. But there is something that I believe harbors in certain folks that, like, oh, let's not stir anything up, because I really think that they think a riot is going to ensue <laughs> if one speaks too loudly on it. And I think that that's, that's part of our long-term systemic problem of how we respond to things or rather how we don't respond to things because because when you just as much as I have a fear I do believe that the reason why those who are in the position of uh, privilege they have a fear too they don't want anything to change yes because there's an unconditional bias that's at play here and that's right we all have it and it's something that so many of us do not want to own up to, 
but we mm-hmm. were raised with it. We learned it based on what community we lived in, where we lived, who taught us, what the lessons we were learning in school. So there is an unconditional bias, but I think that's a very valid point because all the people who surrounded you would tell this story from their unconditional bias, from how, not just how they saw it, but how they were raised and the fear of having to confront and face a situation like this. I see a trend of shaming at this time where to bring up something like this, it, it's a, it's not like a, I had a word for it. Uh, it, it was something along the lines of, you know, this like patronization, you know, it's like, em- it's empathy, but it's, Oh yes, it's 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 sort of like ta- it's like taking back the empathy, and sw- like baiting and switching the empathy for shaming, which mm-hmm. is you know, oh I'm sorry that happened to you, or or more like just being an apologist, you know, I'm sorry that happened to you, but you it's know, right there. You just said it. You don't have to yeah, say anything more. Like, the, the, word but, but. Right. the word but, the word the word but negates everything exactly. and it does and it does so much emotional damage yes. i mean people came to me and said oh i'm just glad that you that you're okay and i'm like you're assuming i'm okay yes i can function i, I can move about in my day to day but it's one more thing that's hanging over my head that when and if this happens again not just to me but to anyone how is it going to be handled collectively i'm not blaming you steve or you know, saying, oh, this is, you know, hey, white people, you got to have this conversation. I'm asking for all of us to have the conversation. But what I'm especially asking is that when you're in, in an environment where I'm not and you hear something, don't laugh it off. Don't apologize for it. Don't ignore it because it's going to seep out somewhere. Some That guy was somebody's brother or uncle or father or, or right. cousin. And right. that's somebody's relative. And I've, and I've, and I've been in more civil and milder situations where equally hurtful racist things have come out of people's mouths. So while that example is one of just someone being so uh, loudly vitriolic, um, that any anything like that is equally painful and very hard to deal with. I was in a situation at work uh, 10 years ago, and in a meeting... Um, a Christian faith person deep in his Christianity. No mistake about that. I know this about him. We were on a meeting and the boss said, you know, see if you can get a better number for this um, bid estimate. See if you can get a better number. And this person said in front of a room full of people, I'll Jew him down. Mm, And there were three Jews in the room, including myself. And you saw the backs of everybody go up and our head boss, he, he froze and he just sort of went, okay. All right. Okay. So moving on. And he moved on mm-hmm. and we all left the room and about, um, 15, 20 minutes later, this person was in my doorway and this is a grown man. This is a, and he's a big guy. He's like six, four big guy. And I was behind my desk. I looked up and I just sort of nodded at him and he said, He couldn't even look at me. He was staring at the floor and he said, I am so absolutely mortified by my behavior and what I said. I am so sorry. 
I did not know that that's not something we'd say. And I want you to know that I've already gone and apologized to the other two people. One person accepted my apology. The other person ripped him a new one and then said, I don't want to talk to you for a while. And he's like, I, I, and he was terrified. He actually said, I, I, I have a family. I don't want to lose my job. And I said, I'm not going to push for you to lose your job. And I said, you just said it. You didn't know. And now you're owning up to it and you're apologizing. We are all good. Thank you for coming here and owning up to it. And he said, it's just something we've always said. And I said, and it's wrong. And you've always been wrong. And now you know. I said, and it doesn't feel good. And I said, why don't we just, you know, I'm not angry with you. I get it. I've been there. I have been there. Um, and he, he sort of nodded. I said, we're going to be better. And he's like, okay. And we were fine after that. Now, another person, the person who really pushed him on it, and really got upset with him. And she had the right to do that. She came to me and she's like, she slammed the door in my office and she sat down and she goes, you know, did you forgive him? He came in, he wanted to apologize. I want to go to HR, blah, blah, blah. I said, you do what you need to do. He came to me and he honestly, truly repented. And I think that's based on his Christian faith. And I give him credit for that. So my question to you, Mary, is if this person came to you, apologized, repented, didn't even give you the reason because there isn't a reason. There's no logical reason in your situation. Mm -mm. Can you, can you, could you accept his apology? And would that help you? Perhaps, perhaps I think at this juncture, I don't even frame it as needing an apology from this man. I feel as if he is, this is what he believes in. Sure. This is this is how he sees the world that that something is being taken away from him as a white man. He made it very clear. Um, it, it's clearly a he created the racial divide, not only in his mind, but so publicly, so virulently, and out on the street. Um, what I you know to 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 make this a hypothetical is really kind of hard because. If I did see him again and he did apologize, I'm afraid it would only be under the condition that somebody had a hot poker up his ass. <laughs> because there are people who will, who shall remain unnamed who are insistent on, if you see him around again, tell me where he is. Well, I will not do that because hence the hot poker. Right, right. Um, again, I, I don't want any harm inflicted on this man unless, of course, he you know, me well, he, you know, messes with a law enforcement person and, you know, gets the what for rightfully. Uh, that's not my job to rough him up or for him to be roughed up in, in terms of an apology. Um, I don't imagine that he's built for a proper apology in which he understands what he has done, because if he did, I think in that moment, I, I, I just can't even imagine it. I think it would take a certain amount of time and a certain amount of conditioning, certain situations that just don't fit on a timeline between last month and now that if he were to come up to me, um, I'm not resisting anything like that. I, I just don't see it as logical for the sake of that degree of anger against somebody is usually harbored and triggered. I've seen that in people that I know and have 
claimed to have loved or even liked. Yeah, that's and that's when it's hardest. That's when it's, it's hardest. It's, it's it's so difficult because it's you know, we we have very complex and complicated relationships with one another as people. Yes. And then when you start to identify through your the color of your skin, I don't like to say race because frankly, we all we are all of one race, but um if you break it down into how you know i identify as american and i'm black i'm not african-american because my family has been in this country for centuries so uh i'm a you know i'm african descent but i think at some point everybody is right but not to digress that how we identify by way of nationality by way of the color of our skin by way of our creed um things start getting complicated in the way we identify and then ultimately stereotype uh you know who should be doing what who can we put into what box what limitations do we put on ourselves and others and for this man to have so recently insisted that i do not even have a place in this world and that i'm worthy of being spat upon and humiliated in public with a barrage of you know if 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 he had a machine gun locked and loaded, the bullets would just say nigger all over them because he was just going at it. Um, So I, I just can't, I, you notice I I can't find that. uh, I just can't pull it together that there would even be an apology. So I guess we should move to like another question. (laughs) question. (laughs) Here's, here's how we come to, the what this shows about world gone good is about finding the light in the darkness and if we can't find it how do we turn a light on and create it ourselves right and that's my goal with this podcast and in all the discussions i'm having with people and some of the discussions are really light and some of the discussions are a little bit deeper and a little tougher to have like the one we're having right now so my question to you is where is the good here what do you think the good is in this situation to the credit of those who are aware or have found themselves not having had to experience something like this, but are willing to surpass their ignorance, like that gentleman that you worked with, I ask that, you know, let's not take a single step back, nor excuse or distract from the behavior that we would not like to see demonstrated towards ourselves or our loved ones. And I feel that the good is in asking that question and knowing that if we continue to have this conversation, that we can move past at least some of this. I mean, we can't completely clear the weeds. Things grow back. Um, People's belief systems are so rooted. They're faith-based, really, Uh, almost religious that they would believe that it it would just take a long time for some people to see something as otherwise because the conditioning, it runs so deep, not only within themselves, but the way society works. So the good could be in let's keep having this conversation. Um, You know, if you can't imagine walking in the shoes of someone who encounters this regularly, then on some level, you know that it's intrinsically wrong. I had sent you an image earlier today of something uh, uh, that was considered so normal and yet so horrific 
in our American history, in our 20th century American history, and that's the lynching postcards. And for those who don't know about that, when a person of color in this country who did not have the same rights as a white person tried to elevate themselves, if it was looked upon as suspect or there was some envy there, um, sometimes it would you know, ultimately result in their lynching, their murder. And it was completely legal. And in certain towns across the country, not just the South, because that's a myth that only happened in one place. It happened right here in uh, New York City. Uh, there would be documentation of this lynching. It would be a town square event. It would be a planned thing. There'd be a photographer there who would then take a picture of the crowd and the lynching, publish the postcards, and they'd be for sale. So people could take these postcards, write to their relatives in other towns and other states and say, well, this is what we did on Sunday. We packed a picnic basket. We, uh, I know this sounds all like a horror film. This sounds like something out of American Horror Story. Well, it's real. It's very real that this happened. So the antithesis of the lynching postcards is, is the documentation, whether it be in how I made a video or for those who encounter horrors here and now can keep pushing their narrative as truthfully as possible in hopes that it's listened to, that it's believed, to not feel that, oh, well, you know, no one's going to believe me. It is Because it is hard. It feels very lonely at times that no one will believe you. Mm-hmm. And also those postcards was a, a way of, of normalcy. Um, exactly. So let's push for the normalcy of when these things happen and people tell their stories that we don't shun them and accept the fact that, oh, well, this is just the way the world is. It doesn't have to be that way. Because again, put yourself in the shoes. It's intrinsically wrong and we know it. We just created laws around it out of perhaps greed. Well, there's, there's so much abundance. There's so much out there for everyone to have that we don't need to grab at things and put someone down in the interim or demean someone because we feel like we have to step on the backs of others to get that said thing. Um, that what this man said, you know, you niggers want everything. Well, we, we don't want everything. <laughs> we just want, you know, if we're not niggers. We, we're we're human also, beings. Uh, let me say this. Everyone wants everything. <laughs> that's called, right. that's called living in a society that is supposed to be about an American dream and an equality and a democracy, we all want everything. No of one course. is no one is out there going, I think I'll have a shitty life and bad credit and live by a swamp. No, no one's saying that. Everybody wants everything. Um, but I think you you nailed it on the head in that there is a mentality among certain people that if someone else has what I have, then what I have is less. And I don't, I've never been one to believe that. I feel that when we all have the same, then we all are on equal ground and we're all more together. Mm -hmm. But there's a fear, there's a fear that if somebody else gets to where I'm at, 
Uh-oh, they're going to pass me. Uh-oh, they're going to have more than me soon. And they need to have less. You need to be over here. And, and that's, that's taught to us um, when we're very young. It, it's taught to us even in, in business. You know what I mean? Like the, the corporate ladder. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, and how men are treated in the corporate ladder, how women are treated, how people of color are treated, how the disabled are treated. But I think what is really key too, if I can jump around here, and I hope everyone can follow my crazy brain, um, <laughs> is I think one of the most powerful things you just said is that the good here is that the conversation keeps going and the conversation stays loud. Yes. And stays consistent. And and it's not to say that every waking moment we have to make things so obvious to the uh the the racial trajectory but to just you know if we're going to have normalcy let's have normalcy for the good yes let's have normalcy where it's not like well oh i'm inviting i'm inviting you to my thanksgiving potluck because you you know a bunch of white folks and we need a black friend here you know invite me, <laughs> invite, invite me because you want me there and you know that i love your stuffing you know um not to be singled out not to be the toe you know like i don't want to be somebody's token right right in, in that instance um or not to feel that the conversation has to sway to the point of almost you know the ridiculous to you know say oh well you know, my favorite, you know, it just reminds me of this episode, speaking of All in the Family and the spinoff The Jeffersons, where uh, one of the black characters would walk into the room and suddenly it's like the conversation switches over like, oh, hey, man, I, I love James Brown. It's like, I don't have to have that conversation all the time. Uh, we are we are not monolithic. Uh, we are very diverse in intellect and in, in, in aesthetics uh, i mean again this is kind of moving away from moving away from the core of what we're talking about but just to say that you know hey white folks who don't really have black people in your lives consider that we are dimensional that's what that's one of the things that i'm asking because um i know it is shocking to white people who don't have to deal with this uh i always say you know the the world's kind of divided into two people people who um you know have been ignorant and are willing to change and people who hold on to their ignorance as a you know as a way of not moving on and uh you know not to put everything in the basket of one but to say you must know someone who has said something in the course of even a week in your life and you might have ignored it and you might have overlooked it or you might have, you know, excused it away. But that's good. It's going to happen in a situation that's going to cause some kind of a problem for someone. So how do you want to have that conversation before it gets dangerous and ugly? Um, I will I will tell you two things. First of all. A very good friend of mine. She grew up in a really small town in Michigan. She went to college. She made a black friend immediately. She's white, my friend. One of the first days of college, 
she went into her friend's dorm room and her friend had these giant posters of prints up. And she's like, oh my God, I love Prince. And the her black new black friend was like, oh, I love Prince too. Isn't he great? He's such a great black musician. He's such an idol for black people and all these things. My friend left the room and she will tell you, she went back to her room and sat down and realized, oh my God, Prince is black. Mm-hmm. It never occurred to her because she listened to his voice and she saw pictures of him and it never occurred to her. And then she was like, Prince is black. Like this was like an, a, um, a huge awakening. And suddenly to her, she had to go back because she loved him so much. All his music changed to her. The message, everything he was saying changed. But she was saying to me years ago when she told me this story and we're two white people, you know, in a bar talking about this and laughing. And she's like, how, what bubble was I living in? And I said, a small town bubble. That's where you were living. And you didn't get mad that Prince was black. And she said, no. I said, you didn't get mad at your friend because she liked Prince who was black and she was black. And she said, no. It was, sounds like it was simply a realization. That, it was a realization. That, and it, and there, there was a certain amount of, I will say, she felt a certain amount of ignorance and shame of how did I not know this? Because it never occurred to her. Mm-hmm. There, there's, a, there's a saying, there's a saying of, where a white person will say to a black person, perhaps to an Asian person, I don't see color. And that can be, to me, that can be interpreted two or three ways. Right. Um, I know that, again, where we are, where we stand today, it's, it's, it's hot. You know, that's not, that's not something you should say to somebody. Right. But I, but I do understand in that context, how that happens, I understand. I understand where that comes from because if you don't have, a, if you don't have the context, you don't have the understanding. If you've never had the exposure, if you will, um, that it's it's not. You know, when people say, "Oh, I didn't grow up racist." It's like, well, you just didn't grow up really having any education on who else is out there in the world because in your world or in your bubble it's probably been all white people and and to say there's been no racial discord well did you have any black people kind of moving into your neighborhood oh the one right but if you had several people are going to start to sweat because that's just the given so i understand with this with this woman as a young lady had her revelation 18, 18 really, years it, old it and it sounds like she just didn't see color because she wasn't, she didn't have that knowledge. She didn't have that understanding of like, oh, oh. The other thing I wanted to say about what you've gone through, and I do believe this um, because it's happened in my life to some degree, and I know other people. I know you fairly well, and I've known you for years. You are a shining black light <laughs> of of positivity and you are you you know you're like me we have our moments we're not so positive but you are kind you are an artist you're a musician i think sometimes the universe draws to us those people who are going to challenge that Mm -hmm. and some of the times i've experienced in my life where something dark comes at me 
I know it's been brought to me for a reason. And part of it is to remind me of the good, of my own good, of the world's own good, and to be able to go, all right, this was that one little blip, which isn't negating anything that's happened to you in your entire life. But I, I believe that to some degree, because you know I've been in situations, I've been called faggot on the street. Um, I was actually spit on in a hotel in Las Vegas that I was walking through. That was an experience um, that I'll never forget. I was so shocked. I didn't even know what to do. I just froze. Um, that was a long time ago. And it takes you aback. Yeah. It really, it really takes you aback because I think we as people who, we don't go through the world looking for trouble we know it we know it exists right but i think we're, we're so conscious of also navigating the good navigating around uh adverse situations that when they do you know i mean this was a situation in some where this man just came upon me i mean i was literally minding my own business i didn't even make eye contact with him and he chose me and so in some, what I'm, what I feel is while he may not want to heal, I believe the good of all this is that this can create a healing situation, an ongoing healing effort. I end all my shows with the same three questions. So here we go. They don't have to fall back to what we've been discussing. They can be anything you want them to be. Here's question number one. Who inspires you? My mom. My mom is, is also uh, the great black light, you know, in terms of bringing light, revealing magic, and being the calm in the storm. And although I, I also have my father's wonderful compassionate but also passionate disposition uh both my parents really my my dad is no longer with us but my mom is a ripe and fabulous 90 and she's still giving lessons in how to be the best person you can be question number two tell me something good um I'm feeling healthy and happy and that I can navigate through this world and bring some more art into it based on the good and the bad. Where can people find you online? Where can they find your music? They can find me at maryedwardsmusic.com. They can find me at maryedwards at bandcamp. Uh, YouTube and all assorted platforms. And I hope that you enjoy the music because I make it out of life. And speaking of that music, let's listen to some of your music right now. Touching down to earth, I read your mind. Reaching out through dreamlike your word I hope to find in the warm space where the tide and seasons take place and the beating of our hearts is keeping time in the warm space 
Thank you, Mary, for your brave and honest talk today. The good is in our growth, and we all, including me, have room to grow. Next time on World Gone Good. I have regrets. Everyone who's lived a great life has some regrets, but I I don't want to go back because I'm where I am right now. Even in those tough days and years and months, there's always good stuff. Crafting queen Margot Potter talks with me about the good in arts, crafts, and being creative. I hope you'll join me. Until then, be good.